Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now to get the conversation started on radio, on television, to help you prepare for that you aren't in the equity market, Greg Bottle joins us with BMP uh, Paribas, Head of Equity and Derivative Strategy. Greg, what does the derivative market say, the Greek letters, what does it say about developing confidence towards 2021? Well, I think it's an interesting story in the in the volatility market. We've seen the VIX come down considerably, and 20, um, as you point out, has been a bit of a low for the last six months. Our view is, though, it's likely to go lower into the new year. We've seen a huge amount of money be put to work in the equity market, but we haven't seen the same type of return to short volatility strategies that we saw pre-COVID. So we think that could be a big story for Q1 next year. We get some notes whenever a guest comes on the programme and the guest quite kindly sends over their thoughts. And I'm looking at these notes right now. Jonathan Farrow laughed at me the last time I was on for my quote, more buyers than sellers are likely to drive the market. Since then, we have seen massive inflows into US equities. Wasn't doubting you, Greg. Wasn't doubting you. Just thought the line was a bit cliche. You expected more inflows, Greg. Well, we think the rate of pace of inflows is going to slow considerably now. So importantly, we don't think we're going to see outflows from the U.S. equity markets, but we do think we've seen a huge amount of money be put to work. We've seen big inflows in the CFTC data for the future. We've seen multi-year highs in terms of the inflows into the ETF universe. And importantly, some of the quantitative strategies that we track have really relevered. So we think that massive pace of inflows we've seen over the last six weeks is going to slow considerably. But we don't think we're going to move into an environment where we're seeing net outflows. So we think that could just be supportive of a slower pace of equity gains going forwards. Greg, this is actually out of consensus a little bit in terms of people saying that the retail investor is now actually getting more confident to put cash into equities and that you hadn't seen that full rotation until very recently and that will gain steam. Is that your sense as well, that other people kind of have too much faith in this cash coming off the sidelines? I put in quotes because I know that that's a contentious phrase. Yeah, I don't necessarily think so. I do think more money can potentially be put to work. I just don't really think it can continue in the pace that it has over the last six weeks. Um, a lot of these indicators we see are really at the the highs that we've seen over a multi-year period. And normally these things mean revert. So, you know, as I mentioned, I don't think that means you necessarily see a reversal in those flows, but it's just a much slower rate of pace. And the interesting thing, it's almost every indicator we look at, core positioning, um, is extremely stretched. ETF flows are extremely stretched. Futures positioning is very stretched. Quantitative strategies are very stretched. So really, I think that there's not as much of a wall of money on the sidelines to step in as maybe there was six weeks ago. Got this really strange dynamic at the moment, though, Greg, whereby typically in the future, there's always something to worry about. But at the moment in the future, there's something to be hopeful about. And in the near term, there's something to worry about. Greg, walk me through how unusual that might be for you and how the market's capturing that story. Yeah, I think equity strategists often talk about it in terms of climbing the wall of worry and that, you know, one of the reasons to be optimistic about equities is when everybody else is worried. And when you can get past those events, potentially that can drive a bullish catalyst for markets. I think when we look to next year, one of the things that we are probably a little bit concerned about 
is that our view that we're going to see a cyclical reopening in the economy, the market will perform well, value will outperform growth, is probably a, something of a consensus call now. So that's probably one of the key risks. Um, but I, I do think those drivers are very strong. And I do think that can that can play out next year. And Greg Bottle, there's gamma, acceleration, convexity, whatever word you want to use for it. It's that acceleration, folks, within markets. The ambiguity of gamma, is it good for our viewers and listeners or not? If we get an acceleration of good news or a continued acceleration, is that good? Does it matter about gamma right now? Well, I think when we look at the options market, the thing that we see is the VIX is often used as a barometer of fear. And one of the things that we haven't seen is a return to the pre, um, pre-February, pre-March levels of volatility. We think we could see a new volatility regime in Q1 next year, where the VIX breaks through 20, doesn't go back to low teens levels, but does trade in the mid-teens, high-teens levels. And that could see some of the short volatility strategies really start to put money to work again. What that typically does is have a self-reinforcing impact of depressing volatility in equity markets. And that's generally a positive thing for risky assets. So, Greg, just to sort of tie this all together, you seem with consensus in terms of the positivity, but perhaps uh, not with some of your colleagues who anticipate some pretty big gains next year. What are you looking for in terms of the potential returns on the S&P and where you expect the biggest gains? So we think that there could be single-digit gains on the S&P. We think we're going to see really strong earnings growth. That's going to be offset somewhat by some multiple compression. So we think we can get um, mid to high single-digit um, gains from the broader equity market. In terms of rotation, I already said that you know we like the value versus growth story, but we do think it's a somewhat kind of consensus view. Where we differentiate ourselves on that view is we think the value sectors that have led, led, um, led the value resurgence in the last six weeks, energy and financials, we don't think are going to be the sectors that are going to drive the value resurgence next week. I think the banks in particular are at risk of being a value trap next year, given the rate environment that we still find ourselves in. Greg, great final thought to leave it on. Thanks for everything this year. Thank Enjoy you. the sparring. Greg Battle of being Paribas. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Jeremy Stretch joining now with CIBC on this historic moment. Jeremy, there has always been a distinctive feel to Switzerland. There has always been the pressure of the gnomes of Zurich and their nation that they have to protect themselves from the wall of money coming in that would form outright deflation. Is this an unfair statement of manipulation to Zurich and the people of Switzerland? Well, of course, this, this uh, particular uh, issue has been brewing for some time, and clearly the Swiss were very mindful of that, and indeed the SMB have uh, increased their uh, visibility vis-a-vis their intervention uh, in order to try and placate the U.S. Treasury. So in a sense, they were uh, kind of anticipating this risk would come, and, and as you correctly say, uh, the Swiss are uh, often recipients of a wall of money when there are uh, periods and episodes of uncertainty. But what the SMB have been attempting to achieve is to uh, maintain currency competitiveness with their primary trading partner, and that is, of course, Germany, uh, and also to limit disinflationary or deflationary tendencies. Um, and it is you know, very much the case that they've been utilizing the policy of uh, the, the currency as a, a means or a mechanism to do that, other than perhaps following some of the other uh, benchmarks that we've seen from other global central banks in terms of uh, asset purchases. So it's, it's, a, it's in a sense the SMB have been pursuing a very different policy, which has ended up with them getting into 
into the crosshairs of the U.S. Treasury. I'm not sure necessarily it's um, you know, the, the, the Treasury sort of uh, doctrine is going to uh, you know, really sort of change the dynamics for the SMB. And of course, it's very interesting that the report has come out today when the SMB will be making their latest policy decision tomorrow. So. Uh, and one would expect them to continue to argue that the Swiss franc is still highly valued and they will continue to intervene. So they, you know, it's, it's very much the case that uh, the two sides are, I think, uh, uh, highlighting the sort of differential positions, but I'm not sure necessarily it's going to change the game that much. The SNB says it doesn't engage in currency manipulation. They also say they're willing to intervene more strongly <clears throat> in the FX market. These two words are important, Jeremy. Manipulation and intervention. And I want to sit on that just for a moment. I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time in Switzerland to visit the Swiss National Bank. I was in the meetings. I would sit there and talk to President Jordan after the meetings as well. And he would often talk about intervening in the FX market. He wasn't shy about it. But manipulation is a different word. Jeremy, is that just a technicality or is that important? I think it is important because, of course, manipulation implies a degree of sort of almost malevolence, i.e. trying to uh, gain an implicit advantage at the expense of your competitor or your counterpart. Um, and that is always you know, seen as a very you know, retrograde step. But I think in the context of the SMB and other uh, parties who are aiming to intervene to try and maintain economic stability or to maintain, uh, as I say, a competitive a degree of competitiveness vis-a-vis uh, -vis trading partners, then there is a, a different interpretation. So I think there is uh, a material difference between intervention and manipulation. And I think the question is uh, whether the U.S. Treasury are prepared to accept that differential when it comes to those negotiations going forward. But clearly, the, the, the SMB do meet the criteria as laid out by the U.S. Treasury in terms of being labelled a manipulator. Uh, but uh, as I say, I think it's not a malevolent process uh, that the Swiss are embarking upon. And I think that's an important distinction. Jeremy, other than name calling, does this have any significance for actual trading action? I, I think probably not. I mean, we, I mean, this report is one that we've uh, often wait, oft wait for and, uh, and get excited about, but then when it comes, uh, we debate it and discuss it for a few minutes, and then we move on to other issues. And I think in the context of uh, what you've been discussing in the course of the last half an hour, I think there are other much bigger fish to fry in terms of uh, the torturous discussions regarding the stimulus process in the U.S. and other uh, broader uh, dynamics in terms of the COVID response mechanism. So I'm not sure necessarily this report in itself really adds too much to the to the narrative. As I say, the timing is interesting in view of the SMB decision uh, tomorrow, but I think it's one which uh, we will we, we will move on from relatively quickly. And of course, you know, the U.S. Treasury Secretary is uh, you know tasked with this, uh, negotiating with the counterparts, but of course that uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary will be uh, also changing relatively quickly. So I think the you know, the, the mood yeah. music or the, uh, you know, the, the, the nature of the news cycle will move on very quickly. The other issue, of course, is that the Swiss just haven't been that successful at this since early 2015, addressing the FX market. Jeremy, great to catch up, sir. Jeremy Stretch of CIBC. Patient this morning, Michelle Meyer of Bank of America. Michelle, thank you so much for uh, uh, waiting for this uh, moment. Mm -hmm. Are we in recession? I look at the ECO screen that McKee tells me to bring up. Negative revision in retail, grim retail. Can you call NBER -E recession? Certainly not. Um, I think what we're seeing is a bit of a payback after exceptionally strong growth in retail spend sure. and in good spending in general over the last several months. And remember also in November, this is going to get a little wonky, but the seasonal factors tend to be very large. When you're looking at month-over-month -month changes, 
um, for retail sales on a seasonally adjusted basis, do you have to account for the fact that you typically have these really large seasonal adjustments in November and December as a result of the holiday season? And there's this is not a normal environment. Far from it. So the way people are spending, the timing of that spend has really shifted, which is probably making these 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 kind of month over month comparisons that much more difficult right now. That much more difficult, meaning that perhaps it paints a worse picture than is actually the case. Is that what you're saying here, Michelle? Well, potentially. I mean, if you look at more high-frequency data, so you look at spending on a daily basis from a variety of different sources, what you see is that you know typically Black Friday. Um, Cyber Monday, there's a big increase in spending, really Thanksgiving and Black Friday with doorbuster sales. People go to stores and they buy. That didn't happen this year as a result of COVID. So you don't have that in-person um, thrust of sales around a two to three day period, um, which historically, when you seasonally adjust the data, you're looking for that type of increase, particularly things like clothing and department stores, as Mike just mentioned. Um, so, yes, I think it's right that, that, that there was a weakening this month relative particularly to what you typically see in a holiday season. But again, part of that reflects these seasonal adjustments and part of it reflects the fact that there was so much momentum heading into this period that some softening you know, isn't that surprising. Are you ready to pencil in a negative print for payrolls for December, Michelle? I don't think the data is quite pointy that yet. Um, we have to continue to monitor claims. I mean, the claims data looked weaker, realizing, again, the noise in the weekly data. But there has been some concerning signs for claims. Um, some of the other high-frequency data points that we monitor, so survey data, um, we monitor data on small businesses from home base and the like. Um, it's so some softening, but certainly not a collapse. So I think it, it's very likely that relative to even the November weakening for jobs, we will see further softening in December, but it's not obvious yet that it will be a negative print. We have to just wait and see what the rest of the data shows up. Well, let's think about lessons learned over the last couple of months then, Michelle, and try and apply them to Q1, Q2 next okay. year. The tailwind is obvious. The vaccinations have started. The headwinds are obvious. New York could yes. be locked down within weeks. We're seeing the same thing in California and elsewhere across the United States. We've kind of got a case study on how this economy responds going into lockdown and coming back out, Michelle. What yeah. have you learned about that and how are you applying that thinking to early next year? Sure. So it's a big deal. I mean, we shouldn't overlook the near term challenges for the economies, which, again, the data is showing. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of it does reflect the fact that the rise in COVID cases has been significant and the responses from governments have been significant in terms of the restrictions. And that's playing a, a, that's making, you know, it's an impact in the data, but it's very, very different than in the spring. In the spring, when we had lockdowns, there was an extreme collapse of economic activity. This time around, there's a greater ability to navigate these restrictions. People can move back to a more virtual workforce. They can shift back to buying more online. Um, there's a more dynamic economy, which I think is helping to buffer some of the pain. Doesn't stop it. There still is a softening, and we're only looking for 1% GDP growth in Q1. So we're forecasting this moderation in growth. Um, but but it's very different this time around in terms of those restrictions than it was back in the spring, given how the economy has been able to navigate it. If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg Television, Michelle Meyer of Bank of America Securities, head of all of U.S. economics. She'll continue with us. We're following not three, but now four stories. Let me get to the quick one. Bitcoin, over $20,000 extraordinary oh it has been a moonshot we'll have some more on that through the day uh as well we have stimulus in washington we're going to have that on in a moment here 
We're looking at retail sales with Michelle Myers and, of course, currency manipulation by Vietnam and Switzerland. What you need to know is yields are set higher here uh, this morning with futures up six, Dow futures up a fractional 14. Michelle Meyer, the oddity here are these huge swings of March the huge recovery balance, and some of the vectors here right now are a little bit uncertain. How does stimulus presumed affect your world? How does stimulus affect retail sales? Well, it has an extremely direct link um, through the consumer. Um, when you think about the ability and the willingness of the consumer to spend, the extent that they're getting more money in through stimulus, they have a greater you know, ability to spend. Now, of course, with restrictions, with lockdowns, that limit how much they can engage in the economy, how much they can spend. They can't go to stores as much. They can't go to restaurants as much. They can buy a lot online. Um, so it changes the composition of spend. But if stimulus is coming in, if funds are coming in, that supports the purchasing power of the consumer. And that was extremely clear back in the middle of April when stimulus funds first started to be distributed even with the economy still largely in lockdown, we saw consumer spending turn around as people went out and started to spend those stimulus funds. And then once the economy reopened, it unleashed quite a lot of spending. So so, so the it was much more extreme turns back in the spring from, you know, economy that was essentially shut down to one that was, uh, you know, brought back to life very, very quickly and very, very abruptly in some ways because of that stimulus and because of the reopening. Um, the turnaround this time is going to be much, much more, more modest, despite restrictions being put in place as a result of the COVID rise. Um, it's the economy has been able to really kind of uh, work around that in a way that is much, much different than the spring. So you're not going to see those big swings this time around in our view. Michelle, there is this question, though, especially if this $900 billion plan, as reported by Politico, goes through, that would yeah. include direct payments to individuals. That's considered by some to be more inflationary. How much could that increase your inflation expectations for next year? Should it be uh, passed as we seem to be uh, seeing the parameters? Sure. So, I mean, if you think about um, go, just looking at cash held on hand in banks or, you know, just money supply measures or uh, the savings rate, there's a lot of cash floating out there already. Um, and with the stimulus likely to be enacted and potentially with direct payments to consumers, that's going to just add to those cash piles. Um, over time, it's spent. That creates a nice, healthy response through the, the real economy. Mm -hmm. And if that really builds on itself and gains a lot more momentum, then sure, it is inflationary. But a really important link is that the real economy has to pick up. People have to use that money right. and push it into the economy. It's not just inflationary because it's been created. And, and this is so important, John Farrow, in terms of the inflation dynamics. We see Switzerland battling deflation, their arch fear for folks pushing five years with their currency intervention that we have seen. And, John, it goes to the disinflation worry and the heritage of United Kingdom real wage declines that was seen across much of the 20th um, century. John Farrow, what's the inflation wins in the United Kingdom, given what Ms. Meyer says about inflation dynamics in the U.S.? Well, a lot of what we've seen over the last several years has been currency driven. I think in the near term now, we're just trying to work out what on earth is going on in this labour market, which is basically levitating at the moment, suspended from the forces of gravity, largely because of what has been going on on the fiscal side. Michelle, it's been really difficult to get a read on these labour markets because they've been so well supported by fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. How's that going to change through 21? 
So I think for the, you know, the labor market hasn't received the same degree of support as the consumer, for example, right? When you think about how the stimulus was designed in the U.S., it was much more around direct payments to make sure that consumers had money to spend and that they can help to lubricate the economy. But in terms of the labor market, there were really extreme losses. You know, um, over 20 million people lost their jobs were um, more than halfway back in terms of recovery. Um, and a lot of sectors are fully recovered, but there's a lot that aren't. A lot of the services, leisure, hospitality, you know, workers that were employed prior to COVID are still out of work going on almost a year um, that they will have not had employment. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of healing that has to be done for the labor market. And I think where stimulus plays a role is actually it creates a bit of a gap between income, which is elevated, and job creation, which is still at levels that are pretty low and pretty recessionary. Um, so the stimulus is really bridging that gap and hoping that it can help generate and buy enough time for the labor market to fully heal itself. And then you get income creation naturally through the labor market. But that hasn't fully happened yet. Michelle, always fantastic to catch up with you. What a morning for it. Right now on the pandemic, and we really taken pride of a cross-section globally of physicians and surgeons looking at the medicine. And of course, the medicine now is to deploy the vaccine. Catherine Baumgarten is with Oxner of Louisiana, Director of Infection Control and Prevention, and joins us about the real world of getting the vaccine out. Dr. Baumgarten, I know you and Dr. Kemmerly down there are on speaking terms, but there's got to be a lot of stresses about actually getting the vaccine out. What have you learned? What is the, the critical stress of moving the vaccine forward? Is it nothing more than the temperature of the shots? Well, there's a lot that goes involved into getting the vaccine from the shipper um, back to a patient's or a person's arm, honestly. So there's lots of steps. We've been working on this for months, actually. We have a multidisciplinary group um, consisting of pharmacy, communications, our nursing staff, administration, um, all of us working to get this vaccine from point A to point B, which is get it into people so that we can start to have some hope and some relief from this um, pandemic. Um, the cold storage is quite a challenge and that has been um, amazing to watch in terms of getting the freezers, getting the um, case from Pfizer, from the shipping company, and then unloading it properly and making sure that then it is thawed properly for the person to receive the vaccine. So all those steps are critical, all of them are important, and so every single one of them is not taken lightly. We have prepared, um, we actually had done a trial with Pfizer, so had some trial runs on how to do this, mm -hmm. we knew how to do it, but making it large scale was a challenge as well. Okay, so you unloaded the dock, and then you get the vaccine up seven flights of stairs, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> do you just assume over the hours, the days and the weeks, that all of us, by definition, are going to have to go to hospitals. We're not going to do this in the doctor's office. Well, um, we have basically set it up in hubs. So we have freezers stationed throughout our health system, and then we are able to transport the vaccine safely um, to our uh, other sites. So it is given currently at our facilities. We have clinics and hospitals in, in which we have stationed um, hubs to basically give the vaccine. Um, the good news, though, is that Moderna uh, does not require such um, as, as precise cold storage um, criteria. So in Louisiana, at least, they are talking about distributing the Moderna 
to places where it might not have these cold um, storage capabilities or these freezers. So there is a plan in place. If that vaccine does get FDA approval later this week, then that would be an option for maybe those areas that don't have the um, deep freezers that we do. Dr. Baumgarten, the news is great. We're all so excited to think about the bridge to the other side and getting to the other side where we don't have to wear masks, et cetera. Just on a qualitative level, based on how it's being rolled out right now, based on the willingness of the people you work with and perhaps even your patients to get inoculated, what is your sense of how this is going and the speed of which we will reach some sort of critical mass immunization? Well, if, if our institution is any um, indication of what's happening, it has been incredible. All of our healthcare workers are prioritized, especially those that are working with COVID patients on our COVID units. We have dedicated COVID units here. Um, and those that are working in the front line, um, such as in our emergency rooms and urgent cares. And everybody has really been so excited about this vaccine. It really gives us a sense of hope. You know, 2020 has been a little bit tough for us, and we've had a lot of stresses on our healthcare. We've done great. We've been prepared. We've taken care of patients, but we've also seen our colleagues ill. We've also seen our patients become ill and die. And so to have this hope, to have this science, to have this resource so quickly has been incredible. And there's just a sense of relief around our institution from Monday. We started vaccinating on Monday and you could just feel that sense of relief. The other good news was how great the vaccine is in terms of its efficacy. And so that was also a hopeful moment when we found out how um, the vaccine is 95% effective and it has minimal side effects really when we talk about um, vaccines. So we were just thrilled. We cannot wait to get it out to the um, other healthcare providers and then the community. In terms of when that might happen, we're talking about the spring, the summer. Um, we need people to take this vaccine. That's gonna be the key here. If we're talking about, um, we need to continue to wear masks at this point, but if we're talking about having uh, Christmas that may be a little more normal, that you may have a little bit uh, larger number of relatives at next year, it is critical that people get the vaccine. And that's what our focus is on at this point. Doctor, thank you. And thank you for all the hard work being done in your industry right now. We're incredibly grateful. All of us, thank you. Dr. Catherine Baumgarten there on the latest with the vaccination effort. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.